Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Fulami Idara Abdullah from the University of Chapel Hill on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine in 2007. You then moved on to do a postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania and moved back to the University of Chapel Hill in 2013 where you became assistant professor and since January 2021 you are associate professor at the same university. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? Yeah, so um, happy to answer that. I um, actually became interested in biology in um, seventh grade. I had my first real biology class at that time, and I had a very charismatic teacher called Mrs. Harris, and she introduced biology as, you know, the study of life. And being very, uh, even at that age, a very philosophical student, I thought that was just like a really big thing to think about, but also just really fascinating um, that you could study life. And I think even more fascinated by the fact that all living creatures are connected through life in one way or another. Um, And I was also really fascinated by the fact that there were so many questions that you could ask. (laughs) Um, And I asked a lot of questions as as a child. And um, there were so many unanswered questions. And I was like, oh, this is really cool. There's there's so much to answer and there's so much to do and there's so many different cool ways to do it. And obviously in the seventh grade, I didn't know much about experimentation um, or genetics specifically, but um, it was just a really fun way to just think about life and um, your existence on the planet. Yeah. So coming to your science that centers around the environment, uh, that centers on how the environment modulates the epigenome and during de- uh, during development and how vitamin D levels or the lack of vitamin D influences DNA methylation and susceptibility to diseases like adipositas. I want to start in the year 2016 um, because this is probably where your current research focus started. Um, the title of the publication was Maternal Vitamin D Depletion Alters DNA Methylation at Imprinted Loci in Multiple Generations. Mm-hmm. So how is vitamin, maybe on a more general level, how is vitamin D and DNA methylation connected? How, how does that work? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, that's really... Um part of the focus of what we're trying to answer. Um, It's not really clear how they're connected yet, to be very honest. Um, We haven't answered that question yet. Um, You know, there are many nutrients that are connected to DNA methylation by either, you know, providing the substrate for that um, methylation reaction or by actually um, modulating the activity of the enzymes that um, uh, produce that particular epigenetic modification. And so, you know, we, we believe, you know, vitamin D could act in one of those pathways. It could also be indirectly affecting DNA methylation. So maybe affecting um, even histone modifications that then of course, maybe destabilize that, that region and affect DNA methylation. We haven't figured that out yet. That's that's the the million dollar question or the million dollar answer that we're we're seeking right now. 
um, in a lot of different ways. But those initial studies, so that study in 2016 that we did was really a proof of concept study because that was the first paper where um, anyone had actually looked at DNA methylation, particularly looked at vitamin D deficiency and changes to DNA methylation during development. Um, Before that, there had been some work looking at DNA methylation and epigenetic regulation of vitamin D metabolism genes, for example, but not looking at how um, vitamin D itself regulated DNA methylation. There was quite a bit of work looking at vitamin D and regulation of um, histone modifications and evidence that vitamin D through binding to the vitamin D receptor can actually um, modulate um, the activity of different histone uh, regulatory complexes um, and in that way affect histone, um, histone modifications, but not specifically DNA methylation. And so we, that paper, I would say, was one of the first to show this effect of vitamin D deficiency during development um, and offspring outcome. And, you know, one of the things, you know, we followed up and, and maybe, you know, we'll talk more about this in a bit, but one of the things that we think is happening and potentially happening and, and what's next on our list to test is um, whether vitamin D is actually perturbing epigenetic reprogramming during development because of sort of the widespread distribution of changes that we see. That 2016 paper was really focused on, as I said, a proof of concept. And we we picked imprinting control regions because those regions are very, um, uh, 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 what do you call it, resistant to um, uh, DNA methylation or environmental perturbation um, of DNA methylation. But it was really a very small focus study, and we've done a, a couple more studies since then. And maybe we can just take a step back. Um, yeah, sure. So, uh, what was your motivation going into the study? So how did you end up? I mean, <laughs> there's a, it's not like an obvious connection no. between vitamin D and DNA methylation, right? So uh, what, how did you end up with uh, with this topic? Yeah, so um, to be very honest, it was not my idea. Um, I wanted to look at folate and DNA methylation, and there's quite a bit of work and even mechanistic evidence for how folate's involved in DNA methylation. Um, however, I had a very persistent and talented postdoc who joined my lab at that time, Jing Zhui. Um, and we also had um, a very, um, I guess, co- coincidental or maybe serendipitous um, interaction with um, Will Valdar, Lisa Tarantino, and Fernando Paramanuel de Vienna at UNC, who were doing a dietary exposure study during development. And they were really interested in um, behavioral outcomes and behavioral outcomes in females. And they had done this really um, four diet study um, looking at low protein, vitamin D. Um, and um, methyl enrichment or methyl donor enrichment. And I, of course, jumped on board because, like I said, I was really interested in folate. Um, and one of their diets was a folate-related diet. And that's what I was planning to focus on. But when you have four diets, and this was being done in the collaborative cross, which is a very um, relatively new tool for studying genetics, it was a lot of mice and a lot of work. And so we had to narrow down on one diet to ask the question. Um, And I honestly wasn't looking at it from the perspective of nutrition at that stage. I was just looking at it from the perspective of an environmental perturbation and which one would make the most 
since for as a model for studying environmental perturbation. And, and so my postdoc, Jing, um, Dr. Joy, who's now um, working at Goodyear, she convinced me to study vitamin D because there was so little known about how it affected um, offspring health, but that there were many new studies coming up that vitamin D deficiency during pregnancy um, altered um, not just neonatal health or fetal health, but also long-term offspring health. Um, and we were interested in developmental programming, which we can talk a little bit more about if you want. Um, and so we chose it as a model because of that. But I was very, I will say I had very low expectations of it. It was more so, you know, we have these mice, we have this diet. Sure, if you want to look at some imprinting genes, we have these assays made already. Go ahead and take a look. And so when she started finding some changes, then I was like, oh, this could be, you know, really interesting and really important um, as well. Once I learned more about vitamin D. Yeah, so you you had those mice, and then you just looked—I mean, just uh, <laughs> looked at um, whole genome DNA methylation changes. Yep. yep, it was it was very exploratory. Um, in the first study, we actually did a targeted approach where we just looked at imprinting control regions. Um, my background was in studying um, epigenetic regulation of genomic imprinting, focused on the H19 IGF2 region. Um, and we had developed a few more at, we started with that locus and then we expanded into other imprinted genes um, and other imprinting control regions. Um, but it was really very, very, very exploratory. We didn't necessarily expect to see anything substantial. Um, but of course, I was pleasantly surprised to see the changes because, as I said, vitamin D deficiency is a very important, um, uh, or I should say, very widespread nutritional um, Uh, 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 deficiency. And there's not um, enough, I think, known about mechanisms of how it's regulating human health. I mean, there is also, I mean, it's not only nutritional, but I mean, you can get it if you are in the sun, right? So it's also like not so easy to see where, where you get your vitamin D from. So that's correct. And that's the benefit of doing the work in the mouse model, right? And so in humans, it's really difficult to track vitamin D status and also vitamin D deficiency, or I should say the sources of your vitamin D status, because you can get it through diet and you can also get it through sunlight exposure. But in the mouse, you can, you know, really isolate where the mice are getting it from and you can isolate how much they're getting and how, for how long they're getting that amount, you know, very precisely in order to test specific windows of susceptibility. Yeah, you not only looked at like, um, yeah, the DNA methylation on imprinted loci in multiple generations, but also you followed up on that story by investigating the impact of vitamin D depletion on the sperm DNA methylation. So what did you find there? Yeah, with the study in the sperm DNA methylation, that was a genome-wide study, right? So we did the first study and we found that the, you know, a few imprinting control regions were differentially methylated, specifically um, the GRAB10 um, imprinting control region, and then several loci at the H19 IGF2 um, locus. And um, we wanted to ask whether this was a widespread effect. So was this a genome-wide effect or was it really isolated to imprinted genes? Because it would be kind of odd if it's just isolated to imprinted genes. There was no sort of you know, um, mechanistic reason that we could come up with that it would be isolated to those genes. Um, and so we did a genome-wide uh, DNA methylation. Um, this is using an Agilent Sure Select kit. So um, as opposed to um, whole genome sequencing, it focuses really on regions of DNA methylation 
um, both within the genes and um, intergenic regions that have been shown to be enhancers or um, promoter regions, um, even distal regulatory elements. And so what we found was that the effect of vitamin D deficiency during development alone was sufficient to perturb um, the offspring sperm epigenome or the offspring sperm DNA methylation um, across the genome. And this was in adulthood. And so the interesting thing here is that these are persistent changes that occurred, right? So we made them deficient at one very specific stage of development, and then we let them become sufficient after that. And so these are persistent changes that persisted from that developmental environment. Um, but their sperm was epigenetically um, dysregulated. Um, we did not um, we did not see any differences in uh, uh, sperm morphology or sperm counts. Um, which we were a little surprised about considering the extent of changes that we saw. Um, but we did see things um, that were interesting in terms of um, where those changes occurred. We found that a lot of the, the sperm epigenome that we were studying, there's a lot of interest in epi, environmental modulation of the epigenome in terms of why some regions are um, uh, 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 perturbed and other regions might be resistant, particularly when you see a genome-wide effect. Um, and so one of the things we found that I thought was super interesting and that we're starting to follow up on is that there were a lot of regions that were partially methylated in sperm, and those seem to have a higher extent of change, um, have the highest extent of change, I would say. The other interesting thing that we found that we're following up on now um, is that the types of genes that were altered were really developmental genes. So a lot of these methylation changes were enriched at developmental genes and at epigenetic regulators themselves. Um, and so, of course, with DNA methylation, you don't know if that is um, a methylation change um, that was directed there or if that is a methylation change that's a result of dysregulation of that gene expression. And also in sperm, you're looking at, you know, a transcriptionally silent uh, cell type. And so what we're thinking is that those methylation change likely um, accumulated during sperm development and likely were caused by perturbation of epigenetic reprogramming. That's a question we're testing now. And our real interest was whether those changes could perturb offspring development. And so we mated those males with this epigenetically dysregulated sperm um, and their offspring were perturbed. It was actually really, really um, interesting. Um, we just looked at like neonatal development um, so far. Um, and so they show differences in growth and development. Now, this would have been my next question. Did you see any consequences or differences in the phenotype? Um, so can yeah. you maybe uh, go a little bit into more detail to that? Yeah, that, so that was, that was the main difference that we've looked at so far was um, essentially seeing differences in, neo, in the neonatal growth and development. Um, so you know, it, was, it was reduced, the growth, or what was the, the phenotype? Yeah, that's a really good question. So essentially, what's, what's interesting about how we did the study was we did the study with, um, because we were initially thinking about imprinting, we did the study with reciprocal crosses between two collaborative cross strains. Um, and what we found was that the effect was inverse between the two strains in terms of the phenotype. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> it's interesting, right? So one strain direction of the cross that we did actually did show that increased adiposity that you mentioned earlier. 
um, and did show um, a higher extent of sperm epigenetic dysregulation. The other direction of the cross seems to be resistant to the vitamin D deficiency. And that, that direction of the cross actually showed fewer methylation changes, um, seemed to be a little less epigenetically perturbed than the sperm. Um, but when we crossed those mice, those males to generate offspring, we actually saw a sort of repeat of that phenotype that we saw in the parental generation, which is an increase in body weight and what looked like body weight um, and growth in the direction in the parental um, in the cross direction that showed the same thing in the parent. And then we saw what looked like a decrease in growth and development um, or a delay in growth and development in the other direction of the cross. And so what was really cool about that was, you know, for the first time, we're actually showing, you know, this gene by environment interaction that's affecting not just one generation, but two generations of individuals. And so it wasn't sufficient just to have vitamin D deficiency. You also had to have a genetic susceptibility um, to that vitamin D deficiency in order to see the phenotype. Um, and so that's something that we're following up on now is to try to understand why one direction of that cross exhibited that um, one, one direction of change and the other direction of the cross exhibited what looked like a more resistant phenotype or even potentially an inverse phenotype. Yeah, this already answered my next question. So this is <laughs> really, really going great. <laughs> um, you already mentioned that um, you also looked at the H19 IGF2 locus, uh, right? <laughs> so why is this locus so so interesting? And what did you do uh, yeah, with, with this locus or studying this locus? Yeah. Um, <laughs> why is the locus so interesting? I could talk for an hour about why it's so interesting. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a basic scientist. I like to ask basic questions. I like to ask mechanistic questions. And part of the reason the H19 IGF2 locus was interesting and important to me had actually very little to do with the function of the locus, although the locus functionally is also very important. It had more to do with, um, how well studied the locus is, right? So it's one of the imprinted loci that probably has the most information about it. I think as much as we know about what happens at imprinted loci, there's still so many mechanistic things that we don't know. We don't know necessarily where all the regulatory elements are at these domains, but H19 IGF2 has been really well mapped out in terms of where the regulatory domains are, There's lots of data in the cell types that we were studying, primarily liver and sperm, um, as to what the methylation state is at those loci. Um, and so as a model of epigenetic dysregulation, it's a beautiful model for studying um, the epigenome and epigenetic modulation by the environment because you know what to expect and you know what perturbation looks like. And you also have tons of data about what happens when you perturb that locus. And so H19 and IGF2, um, you know, probably, um, and that probably are, you know, one of the first um, imprinted domains that was identified. And that's why there's so much data on it. Um, but they play a role in growth and a really important role in growth and development in the embryo, in the mouse um, and in humans. And they are um, co-regulated by an imprinting control region that lies between the two genes. Um, that regulates imprinted expression of both genes. Um, and so part of the, the reason that, that that locus was so important in asking the initial question was, we know exactly where that regulatory element is. We know exactly where the enhancers are that regulate that element. We know a lot about the, the proteins and 
factors that are binding to those regulatory elements. Um, and so we were able to kind of think about those things within the context of the changes that we were seeing. Um, I will say the changes we saw in response to vitamin D at that locus were very, very, very small. So we didn't put a lot of weight on the functional or physiological relevance of those changes. It was more so that this environmental perturbation had the ability to perturb this region, but we don't believe that those changes are actually playing a really significant role in the phenotypes that we saw, okay. just because they were so small. So you already touched upon this uh, in, in the answers that you gave. Um, <laughs> but what I'm always interested in is like, it's, it's great to talk about the work that you have done, but it's also great to talk about the work that you will be doing. <laughs> so what <laughs> yeah. are you working on right now? And what are your plans, let's say, for the next five years? Oh, yeah, we're doing a lot of fun stuff. And so you asked earlier, you know, how is vitamin D causing changes to the DNA methylation, either the changes we saw at imprinting regions or the changes across the genomes? And so one of the things we're looking at right now is um, the role of dysregulation, uh, or I should say perturbation of um, epigenetic programming. And so most of the changes that we've identified so far have been in adult animals, right? And developmental epigenetic reprogramming is happening during development, during fetal development for the most part um, of both the somatic cells and the germ cells. So our first question is take a is to take a step back in time and ask about how vitamin D is affecting that those epigenetic reprogramming steps. And the cool thing about doing that question is that we know the, again, the enzymes and the regulatory factors that are at play during those developmental periods. We know, you know, almost exactly what they should be doing, what they shouldn't be doing. And so we can really look at those stages and see whether it's perturbed in terms of not just the methylation, but the entire reprogramming uh, mechanism of reprogramming. The second thing that we're doing and that we're really interested in, um, because my, you know, first love is really genetics. Um, and epigenetics is my second love. And so when you think about genetics, we're really interested in, you know, how different um, uh, genotypes contribute to these phenotypes. And one of the things I said that we found was when we did those two different crosses, we were able to see differences in their response, meaning that there is some sort of genetic contribution to what we're seeing, um, or we expect there to be some sort of genetic contribution to what we're seeing. Um, and so one of the things we're looking at right now and that we have a bit of data to support is whether it's a difference in vitamin D metabolism that's driving that difference in response. So that's sort of our first, first question. And so we're doing a little bit more investigation into genetic and epigenetic regulation of vitamin D metabolism on its own, um, which ties kind of into your earlier question of, you know, in humans, understanding where the differences in vitamin D status come from is really hard to do, but you can break those pieces apart and really dissect the mechanism in the mouse. And there is a ton of information on vitamin D metabolism, really important work that's been done in terms of the genes and the regulatory elements that contribute to it. But we still don't fully understand why some people um, respond the way they do to different vitamin D um, levels in the environment or different vitamin D intakes. And so that's one question because we really suspect that it most likely is that genetic response or that difference in susceptibility um, is most likely due to differences in vitamin D metabolism. So that's one question that we're looking at. 
Um, so we're essentially looking at, you know, where those epigenetic changes are coming from, why there's a difference in genetic uh, susceptibility to those changes. And then the third piece of what we're doing in my lab is what do those changes do at the level of phenotype and disease? Um, and so we've shown um, some pretty substantial epigenetic changes in the liver. And so we're looking at the impact of these changes on liver metabolism and its contribution to things like um, fatty liver and hepatocellular carcinoma. That's one area. And then in the germ cells, which is sort of my, my pet project that I'm working on, I'm actually working on a grant right now to, to try to look at that, is really trying to understand what is it that's perturbed about the sperm and how does that affect the next generation, right? Um, is it, you know, there's lots of studies suggesting that these are small RNA that are transmitted from the male to the offspring, because the interesting thing that we found with our study when we looked at transmission of the genomes from these affected males is that those methylation marks that we saw in the sperm um, do not seem to be directly inherited by the offspring. And so we don't think it's necessarily directly a DNA methylation mark that's causing these changes. There's lots of pieces to the epigenome, as you probably know. <laughs> it's probably some other sort of epigenetic uh, uh, mechanism. And so we're looking into um, some of the earlier um, uh, epigenetic uh, markers that have been associated with vitamin D deficiency um, in terms of like histone modifications, um, or is that affecting um, some of this early, um, the early um, epigenetic changes that happen in the pre-implantation embryo? So those are all questions that we're, we're looking at right now in the future. Yeah, that would have been my next question, right? If it's the epigenetic changes you're talking about, because in the beginning we started with DNA methylation, yes. and yeah, that would have been my next question. If all those studies are just focusing, just focusing on DNA methylation, or if it also includes like the other parts of the epigenetic uh, area. Yes, yes. Um, so that's that's our goal is to um, is to branch out and see what other epigenetic changes are modulated by this developmental. Um, exposure to vitamin D deficiency. Um, I think that it, the re, part of the reason we started with DNA methylation, why I thought it was important to start with DNA methylation is because of it, it's a persistent effect from development. And we felt like that would be the easiest marker to trace back into time. But now that we know the regions that are perturbed, now we can actually target those regions to ask about other epigenetic modifications mm -hmm. at those regions. We can ask about the enzymes that regulate those modifications or the complexes that regulate those modifications. And then it becomes a little bit of a broader story beyond DNA methylation. And I think for sure, it's definitely a broader story beyond DNA methylation. Um, I think that that's just an easy place to start and one place that, you know, we could potentially translate to other studies pretty easily because DNA methylation is a little bit um, easier to measure um, in frozen tissues, for example, which is what we end up having access to a lot of the times. Um, we're really interested in looking at not just effects in the soma and germline, but also looking at extra embryonic effects as well. There's a lot of interest in how um, epigenetic changes in the placenta contribute to fetal development. Um, and so, again, that's, um, that's a place that we can look at when we do some of our early embryonic studies um, is looking at the placenta and the, devel the development essentially of the entire um, uh, 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 cell lineages from the, from the blastocyst um, stage onward. 
Yeah, that sounds uh, very interesting. <laughs> and uh, fingers crossed that all your grants will be um, granted. <laughs> well, thank so, you. I appreciate it. <laughs> so to finish off this interview, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one being, uh, did you at one point of your career face a situation that you have reached a dead end or did not know how to proceed uh, to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Yeah. Did I face a dead end at one point in my career? Mm, I think... Yes, I, I think <laughs> if you're if if you're a real scientist, sometimes it's hard to reach a dead end because you always have another question to ask, even if it's not related to the initial question you asked. I assume you're talking about research, a dead end in research. Primarily, yes. I mean, yeah. <laughs> you can you can share whatever you you like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't want to, but I don't want to get too personal. <laughs> no, 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 no. Yes, yes, yes. That's 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 fine. <laughs> yeah. So I think you know we we had a a so so as as my background was in genetics, you know, when I was a postdoc, I had a model um, that we were testing, looking at um, genetic regulation of imprinting, and specifically different um, genetic um, mutations at the H199GF2 ICR and how those mutations affected imprinting at that locus. That was sort of my, my postdoc project. And it was kind of interesting and it wasn't really a dead end. It was just a surprising finding that we were never able to completely dissect. I think my, my postdoc mentor may have moved on with that project or not. But essentially, when we made these mutations, they were made to mimic what we saw in human studies. Um, and one, they did not mimic what we saw in human studies. And that's actually what got me interested in environmental changes, because I assume maybe it's a gene by environment interaction that's happening in humans. Um, but we found that those genetic changes at this supposedly very, very, very important imprinting control region or regulatory element had very little effect on the imprinting at the locus. And so it made it, it, it was kind of a dead end for me because it was like, okay, these changes don't affect this locus in the way that we think they are. But there were a ton of other questions that came out of this, right? Um, and one of those things was, you know, if we delete 75% of this really important epigenetic regulatory region, and it has very little effect, when it's transmitted maternally, which is the disease state that we see in humans um, or the disease mechanism that we, we propose in humans, you know, but it's actually maintaining its epigenetic mark as well. You know, what is it, what is that region actually doing, right? What are these regions of the genome or these regulatory sequences actually doing? Is it a sequence? Is it a combination of sequences? And so it, it kind of was a dead end for that question, but it opened the door to me thinking about these regulatory elements very differently in terms of what they do and why they're so important um, for epigenetic regulation and gene expression. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a, at the end can also mean a pivot and then open yes. like a whole new <laughs> new avenue for new ideas. So that's Absolutely. Yeah, because it, it did pivot and I didn't I didn't work as much on this because I was leaving the lab, but it pivoted us to really ask, you know, how why is that region? Why is that piece of sequence um, so important and how does it maintain its imprint? And so that's the direction I think my, my postdoc mentor, Marisa Bartolome. Uh, went in um, and started looking more at, you know, how the human locus differs from the mouse locus 
and whether there are some major differences in how that particular region regulates imprinting between mouse and human. Um, so it did it did set off a pivot in a new and exciting direction. That's why I said there's not really dead ends for most scientists. We just find a new question to ask <laughs> in a different way. So in the last 32 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in the interview? Yeah, um, I think the most important finding that I've had so far in my research career, specifically as, as a, an independent researcher, so after my postdoc, um, is the genetic susceptibility finding. The fact that um, the, genetic, um, the genetic background or the genetic sequence, right, is actually um, regulating very, very strongly how we respond to environment. And I think everyone knows this and everyone accepts that the genetic sequence is doing this. But I think what was most important about it was the extent to which it regulated that response. It was, it was really a yes or no. Um, it was less, um, not as much of a, a, what I thought would happen, which is a little bit more of a, 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 a what do you call it? A, um, a more, um, uh, uh, um, A, a variation that sort of increased or um, had a grade to it, for example, or quantitative variation. In, in the case of what we saw, it, it was really susceptible and resistant. Um, and so I was very surprised by that because um, I didn't think the effect would be as strong. I thought there would be an effect for sure because that's the expected gene environment interactions. There's a reason why we study those, but I didn't affect the, expect the effect to be um, As, as strong as it was. Um, and I think what it does is it makes us think a little bit differently about how we not just do animal model studies, right? If we're only looking at one strain of mouse, are we missing everything else that's happening um, in response to environment? And I think a lot of environmental studies do just look at one strain of mouse. Um, and so starting to think a little bit more about the need or even a requirement in biomedical research to look at effects across multiple strain backgrounds because you're going to see a big difference. And I feel like that will replicate a lot more what's happening in human populations as opposed to looking at one strain of mouse. It's expensive, it's time consuming, it's very difficult work, but it's very important if we want to start really applying some of these findings to a human population. I think the other important component of finding that was realizing that if we're doing this study in a human population where we're all genetically different, we have to find some way of potentially um, stratifying by genetic ancestry or genetic background, even in humans, um, in order to see these effects more clearly. Because if you put everybody together in one group, um, you won't see these phenotypes at all. Um, and you'll have groups that might be more susceptible and you won't see them you know, consistently across populations because you're just grouping everyone together. Um, and so for me, that was the most interesting, I think an important thing that we found so far and published so far. Um, and I'm hoping, you know, it, in looking at the genes that are responsible for this and identifying and characterizing those genes and also identifying and characterizing the epigenetic changes that are responsible for that environmental effect, um, we'll be able to apply these in a much more directed manner um, 
And there's, you know, the, the code word now is like precision nutrition, precision medicine. Um, and I'm all for that, but my bigger interest is having more inclusive medicine. So medicine that includes the effects that are seen across different genetic backgrounds and different populations of people. Yeah, I think that's a good point to end this interview. Thank you for allowing me for your time and for being on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Stefan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.